If you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. It's good to remind ourselves now and again that the Gospel of Mark was not originally divided into chapters. In other words, Mark never divided it into chapters. Editors have done that later, and uh, some of the reasons for doing that are tremendously helpful as enable you to find your way around uh, the Gospel of Mark and all the other books of the Bible. But uh, at times, when they make a chapter division, uh, then you forget uh, that uh, Mark doesn't really necessarily have any division there, and so you may not notice... uh, uh, some things that you should have and were are meant to uh, to notice. Um, there's a uh, Ken Burns film I've mentioned before, uh, the PBS documentary Ken Burns, and he uh, he did a little documentary uh, film on Mark Twain. And uh, it's a series of interviews, as most of his uh, films are. And uh, one of the Mark Twain scholars that he interviews makes the comment that certainly one of the things that made Mark Twain such of an engaging writer was that all his life, He had been a great noticer of what was going on around him. He was a great writer because he had been, all of his life, a great noticer. Well, that's that's something to keep in mind uh, when you are reading your Bible. Um, The Bible is a lot more carefully written than we generally read it. And so there are almost always a lot more there to be noticed. And sometimes it's important and sometimes it really helps um, if you'll notice uh, what Mark has said, or the sequence of the stories that he has linked together. And I think that's true as it comes to our text for this morning, which we'll take note of as we get into it in just a few minutes. But let's first stand together and we'll read Mark 8, 1 to 9. Mark 8, 1 to 9. In those days when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples and said to them, I have compassion upon the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. 
And some of them have come from far away. Now, from the previous story, we are to have noted that he is still in the region of the Decapolis. And so these people are probably from, Decapolis simply meant ten cities. So this region has ten towns in it, and some of them are like five miles away, and some of them are like 35 miles away. So if you're in the Decapolis region, it would make sense. Some of them have come from far away, up to 35 miles. And his disciples answered him, How can we feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate, and they were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, you are our God, and in you we take refuge. We take refuge from our sins. We take refuge in the face of our problems, in the face of ill health, in the face of political turmoil, in the face of deep disappointment, in the face of financial concern. O Lord our God, in you we take refuge, trusting you to be the one who saves us from all the problems that pursue us. You rescue us. Otherwise, our lives would often seem to be in danger of being torn to pieces as if a lion had come upon us and we were dragged off. For aside from you, there would be no one to rescue us from our own sinfulness, from the sinful society in which we live from the terrible deception that has been placed all around us. O Lord, our God, uh, we ask that you would watch over our lives, that you would keep us from treating one another poorly, treating one another unjustly, 
even towards our enemies, that you would make us careful to keep your assessment of our lives constantly in mind. For you warn us that you respond to our lives. You respond to the world around us. As the psalmist says, you arise, O Lord, in your anger. You are lifted up in fury at the enemies. Awaken us to yourself, O Lord, among the congregation of your people. May we be attentive to you. May we look to you and trust in you. We ask, Lord, that you would try our hearts and our minds as our all-righteous God. So, Father, we pray now that you would come and meet us uh, in this hour and through this story about Jesus feeding these 4,000. May we learn what your Spirit has for us to learn. From these words in Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. Switch over to Matthew's gospel for a moment, which was the parallel passage was read. So this story is repeated in Matthew's gospel. It's found in Mark and Matthew. Matthew's gospel, you will remember, opened like this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then the final two verses of Matthew's gospel read this way. Uh, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, those noticers that I was talking about when it comes to the Bible, notice that Matthew's gospel is like bookended between what they would call an inclusion. They usually use a little Latin term for it, the inclusio, an inclusio. That is, it it opens and it closes on the same thing. Well, obviously, it opens the birth of Jesus, and it closes with the resurrection of Jesus. Oh, but no, there's more things that it opens and closes with than that. It opens with a mention of the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises to David and to Abraham. Now, we meet Abraham in the Old Testament in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord God said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. 
so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. Jesus is offspring of Abraham. And through Abraham, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. So it opens Matthew's gospel with this reference to Abraham, and it closes, as I say, with these words. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. All the nations. Jesus, as the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, Jesus as not only the Savior of the Jewish people as their Messiah, but Israel's Messiah turns out to be the Savior of the whole world. Go, therefore, Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus himself is quite aware of this as he moves through his ministry. And now and again, as we noted last week, he says it right out loud. So John 10, verses 15 and 16, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for my sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, all the families of the earth. Or in Genesis 12, all the nations. I have other sheep that are not Israelites. They're not descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet they are his sheep. Now, the thing that we should have noticed and ought to notice, and that I think Mark means for us to notice, is that our last three stories in a row have dealt with Jesus' interaction with Gentiles. The Syrophoenician woman, whom he seems to insult for being a Gentile, the deaf man living in the region of Decapolis. And now, the third story in a row, a great crowd of 4,000 people, almost certainly mostly Gentiles, gathered in the region of Decapolis. I've stated our thesis for this morning this way. It is through Jesus that God keeps his promise to Abraham to bless all the nations. It is through Jesus that God keeps his promise to Abraham to bless all the nations, including all the nations that we represent in this room this morning. So including, for my sake, the the, uh, Scandinavians. Um, even the Scandinavians, um, they're, all, they're all included. Um, 
in this. Uh, Verses 1 to 3. In those days, when again a great crowd he had gathered, and had come, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. For some of them have come from far away. Over this, it just puts this as our first heading for this morning. We are meant to note Jesus' attitude toward the Gentile crowd. Verse 2. I have compassion on this crowd. I have compassion on this Gentile crowd. So here's the question. Has has Jesus' attitude toward Gentiles completely changed since he was over in Tyre and Sidon, just a short bit before. He came straight here from Tyre and Sidon. And it was at Tyre and Sidon that he told this woman, appropriate to our text, um, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread... Now we got seven loaves of bread to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. But now, 4,000 people like her, and without prompting, we're told, oh, he has compassion on them. So what gives? Has Jesus completely changed his attitude? toward Gentiles between the Syrophoenician woman and this crowd, because it's Gentiles three stories in a row. It's Gentiles that he praises there in Tyre and Sidon. It's a Gentile man that he restores hearing to, and it's by far and away mostly 4,000 Gentile dogs, if you use the terminology that he used with the Syrophoenician woman, But he doesn't talk anything like that here. I have compassion. I have compassion on these people. Now, I mentioned it three stories ago with the Syrophoenician woman. He apparently despises this woman for her race. But only apparently. That's not really at all what's going on when Jesus speaks to her so harshly. Um, Rather, what's going on is he's making it plain to her that the only hope for the world is Abraham's offspring. The only hope. There is no other hope, no other way to know God except 
through Abraham's offspring. Hence the comment, Gentile dogs. You're going to acknowledge, are you going to acknowledge the absolute essential nature of Israel's Messiah, which is who she had come to. Jesus said this really straightforwardly to the Samaritan woman. Didn't beat around the bush like he did with the Syrophoenician woman. Remember how he put it in John 4:22 to the Samaritan woman. It's blunt, but it is straightforward and she can just hear exactly what he means. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, speaking of the Jews, for salvation is of the Jews. You don't know what you're talking about when you worship, you Samaritans. You've missed the boat. You don't understand God's way of salvation. You don't know what you're talking about, what you're worshiping. Salvation, frankly, is from the Jews through the promise to Abraham. And ultimately, that promise to Abraham becomes fulfilled in Jesus as Israel's Messiah. Now, this crowd, this crowd certainly has no aversion to Jewishness because they've been listening to a Jewish man now for three days, receiving healing from him, but listening to him for three days, we're told. Verse 2, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days. They have nothing to eat. But when you look back, you see, well, Jesus had compassion on the Syrophoenician woman too. Oh, he sure did. Pronounces her very blessed, commends her faith. He has compassion upon the Gentile man born uh, deaf, or at least deaf in, in later life, and now he has compassion upon these 4,000 Gentiles. He has compassion. He, he cares about them. He has compassion. So him used to be uh, popular years ago called just does Jesus care? Does Jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for mirth or song? My burdens press and the cares distress and the way grows weary and long. And then the answer to the question, oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief or with my hunger or with my sick daughter or with my deafness. When the days are weary and the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. He cares about all the nations of the earth. He cares about all the families of the earth. He cares about the Gentiles living in the region of the Decapolis, 
And now he's about to perform a mighty miracle for a mass of Gentiles. Now, in the narrative text, nothing is spelled out. Nothing is spelled out. It's kind of vague. You have to read and think about it and, and meditate on it. Uh, from reading the commentaries on this, they, would, uh, they could have all adopted that uh, famous uh, Buffalo Springfield line from 1967. There's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. That's the nature of their comments. There's something happening here. But what it is, isn't exactly clear. But that's always the way with narrative theology, right? You tell a story. Make a person think. Make a person meditate. What's really going on here? But at the very least, you can come away with, well, Jesus has compassion on this crowd. Secondly, we're meant to note that the disciples are slow to learn. The disciples are slow to learn. Um, Verse 4, by itself, this whole point. How can one feed these people with bread here in a desert place? Well, maybe about the same way that he fed 5,000 people not that long ago. Right? That's what jumps off the page at us. If you care about the Bible, you, may, you're, you might find yourself almost a little embarrassed for Mark here. Oh, boy, he doesn't realize. Liberal scholarship, that's exactly what they think. They say, oh, poor, naive Mark. Here's what he did. There's this legend that was floating around uh, about Jesus feeding a multitude of people with a boy's lunch. And stupid Mark turned it into two separate stories. (laughs) Oh, my. If you're old enough to have watched Bugs Bunny, what a maroon, that Mark. What a maroon. Oh, my. Um... It's just silly. And we feel a bit of their poke, don't we? Like, well, um, yeah, I guess. But then if you think about things a little bit, think about things a little bit. Um, First of all, Just think about your own discipleship pattern. When it comes to following Jesus, are you a rapid learner or a slow learner? Are you an impressively consistent follower? Or often a disappointingly inconsistent follower. I think most of us know where to put yourself. I hope you do. Because I doubt very much you're impressive. 
I know a lot of you, and you're impressive in some ways. Um, um, but uh, not altogether in every way. Um, and you know me, and uh, same thing. So, uh, there's a great C.S. Lewis line that he used in the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful metaphor for discipleship, right? Where uh, these ch- the children are moving further up and further in to Aslan. Further up and further in. But you know, our discipleship doesn't tend to be that nice ascent linear thing, does it? It doesn't, it's not our story, isn't that we've just steadily and seamlessly and wonderfully moved further up and further in. But we're more up and down and all around, but hopefully winding, winding forward, winding ultimately further up and further in, but it's not clean like that. It's not clean like that. Before coming back to the disciples, um, inconsistency and, and slowness indirectly, let's cut them a little bit of slack, right? They are, they are extremely aware. None of them have forgotten that Jesus fed 5,000 people with a boy's lunch. They haven't forgotten that. Neither have they forgotten that he fed 5,000 mostly Jewish people with a boy's lunch. As God had fed the Israelites in the ancient world for 40 years. In the desert, nice analogy, they were supposed to pick up on that. Maybe they did pick up on that. But that has nothing to do with this crowd. These are Gentiles. And at our last stop, Jesus just said, we don't give the children's bread to dogs. He even said bread. And now we got seven loaves of bread. So what's seven loaves of bread? So they may have been thinking a little like that. And so they don't they don't think he's gonna do anything like he did. But back to us. Back to us. Because this is not, this is, remember, you're, you're very rarely, I, in fact, I would say you're never, you're never supposed to, when you're reading the New Testament, you can, you can whenever you catch yourself doing this, uh, you know that you're off the track. When you catch yourself saying, <laughs> Peter, James, and John, Loser, loser, loser.
If only I had been there. You know, I would have been, I would have gone straight to the head of Jesus' class. And he would be, he would be saying this with some regularity. Peter, James, and John, would you watch Randy? Would you just watch him? Oh, what a wonderful soul he is. Always picks up on just what I'm talking about. But you guys. See, if you feel that way just a little bit, you went off. (laughs) You got off the highway and now you're lost. You're lost in the side streets. Because that's never the point. Think of us. I I want you to challenge yourself with this a little bit. Uh, Try to remember. You probably don't remember. Because uh, we don't usually remember these things. But the, when you got up this morning, the first thing that you were really thinking about, what's the first thing you were really thinking about, concerned about for the day, maybe just getting to church on time or whatever it was? But this last Wednesday in our uh, uh, time in the Psalms and prayer and Wednesday nights, We're in the second half of Psalm 5. And in Psalm 511, we read this. But let all who take refuge in you, this is him praying to the Lord, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them. That those who love your name may rejoice in you. That those who love your name. Well, it's really key that you can self-identify as one of those. Those who love your name. Right? One of the most often quoted and most turned to promises in all of the New Testament. Paul's great promise, right, in Romans 8. God causes all things to work together for good. For who? For those who love God. For those who love God. Jesus, later in Mark's gospel, will be found as, in all three synoptics, answering the question about what's the great commandment. And he answers it by quoting Deuteronomy 6, 4 and following. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, beyond, how many mornings a week Do you wake up and think to yourself, i got to really be sure that I'm loving God today. After all, I'm a follower of Jesus, and he says that's the most important thing that I can possibly really focus my attention on. That's the most important area of life where I ought to be sure every day to find myself obedient. We don't do that. We, 
usually don't know what we're thinking about when we get up in the morning. We're, we're, we're going through a routine. We're not, we, we may not think about that all day long. Yeah, but no, that couldn't be. We're followers of Jesus. He said that's the most important thing. Yeah, he did. Well, it's not a shock. His first century disciples were a little like us. Um, like, we have no idea how you're going to feed all of these people. Um, uh, and don't be too quick to say to yourself, oh, I'd have gotten that one. That would been an easy one for me. Well, if you're not doing that great on love the Lord your God with all, all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, I'm not sure you'd do all that well with the crowd feeding either. Thirdly, finally, we are meant to notice the reality of the miraculous power of God. This is the bulk of the story right here, beginning in verse 5. How many loaves do you have? And they said seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks... He broke them, gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. Maybe it's good to translate that they had a few little pieces of fish. A few little pieces of fish. Um, And... Having blessed them, he said to these also that these also should be set before them. And they ate, and all 4,000 of them are satisfied. They all had plenty to eat. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. So at the end, everybody's full. Seven baskets, almost certainly symbolic. They're all full in the fullness of leftovers. And clearly what stands out to anybody who's thinking is, that's impossible. That's impossible. That is absolutely impossible. Now, if you don't think that, then you miss the point. Because that is the point. That is impossible. Humanly impossible. You can't take seven loaves and a few pieces of fish and feed 4,000 people. It's impossible. But the thing is, of course, it happened. They did it. Not only did it happen, but the disciples participated in it. 
So they really, really know that it happened. They know about the seven loaves they started with and the few pieces of fish, and they knew that somehow they distributed bread and fish to 4,000 people, and that everybody ate and was satisfied, and then they gathered up stuff at the end. They know they did that. So it happened. But they also would have known, just like we do, that it's impossible. See, and they're supposed to be learning here. They're supposed to be learning Mary's angelic theology lesson from Luke chapter 1. Remember that angel approaching Mary. Luke 1, verse 30. Angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary raised her hand says, How can this be since I am a virgin? Which is a polite way, a polite way of saying This can't be. You see, apparently you angels are a little behind on human reproduction. This can't be. For I am a virgin. And that's when she receives... That's when she receives her angelic theology lesson. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And now the lesson in a nutshell. Here's what he said to her. For nothing will be impossible with God. For nothing will be impossible with God. Now that's clearly a version of what the disciples were supposed to walk away from this incident with now for the second time. Their version of it would go this way. For nothing will be impossible with Jesus. Nothing. Nothing will be impossible with Jesus. And when we read the story, that's what we're supposed to walk away with too. Nothing will be impossible with Jesus. He can do anything. You can never read your situation without factoring him in and read it accurately. 
we don't know exactly what he's going to do. We can't necessarily put his power right where we want it. But we are supposed to live in this confidence every day. We know. Nothing is impossible with Jesus. Nothing is impossible with my Savior. Nothing is impossible with the one that I can speak with, who speaks in behalf of me. Nothing is impossible with the God whom I pray to as our Father, who art in heaven. Nothing is impossible with God. And it's applicable to Gentiles like us. Yes, it is. And we're in the midst of this fulfillment of all the nations of the earth being blessed. All the ethnic backgrounds gathered in this room are illustration of the fulfillment today, even. And it remains true for us all. Mary's lesson. Nothing shall be impossible with God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would enable us to live in the light of your truth, that we would, though slow to learn, that we would learn. Learn to live, learn to love, learn to trust you, learn to rest in you, learn to mirror a great confidence in you. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.